0: So, we're going to be in Isaiah 53 here this morning, and I wanted to bring a few messages um, about uncommon Christmas. And when you, when you talk about Christmas time, what pictures um, usually come into your mind about what Christmas is all about? What? Manger. Manger, okay. What else? Great. Trains, okay. (laughs) Nativity scene. scene. Going to church to worship. worship. How does the world sometimes picture Christmas time? Santa Claus. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today, Santa Claus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But, you know, Christmas time, I remember when I was... uh, uh, younger, there was a movie that came out and it was called Jingle All the Way. It was with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And remember it was that one toy that everyone had to get and there was like fighting and black eyes and all kinds of weird stuff like that. And um, right now I think there's a toy, it's called a Hatchimal. Have you heard about those? It's like this egg and like this thing like breaks out of the egg and yeah, it's really strange. They're like going on eBay for like, I don't know, like $400 right now. So, but you know, the world has this picture, this idea of Christmas, and sometimes it's it deals with selfishness. Sometimes it deals with um, you know, getting and, and 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 also, have you ever noticed too that everybody is like super nice around Christmas time, but then as, moment Christmas over, it's like forget you. I'm gonna cut you off, and I'm gonna you know, I don't know what the deal is with that. But anyways. What I'd like for us to focus on is uncommon Christmas. Now, this morning I'm not going to give you things about like, um, you know, the manger scene or we three kings or, um, you know, there's no room at the end. But I really want us to focus in on some of the passages of scripture that, yes, they deal with Christ, but it's something that you wouldn't necessarily hear around Christmas time. Because I think the message of Christmas is not so much the baby being born, it's what that baby ended up doing. And that was going to the cross. That was bleeding and dying for our sins. And so that's really what I'd like for us to uh, hone in on here this morning. Could you imagine if you were to walk outside, like right now, and outside there was in big bold letters a phrase that said, I exist. I mean, it was just there, plain, I mean, everybody could see it. The news people would start getting on and saying, look at this, these letters are in the sky, it says, I exist. How would that change our view of who God was? How would that change the view of people that are skeptics or people that are atheists? And how would that change their view about who God is? I mean it'd be kind of strange wouldn't it but the reality is we don't need God to say I exist because he already did do that there's a big word that we use it's uh, the word in uh, incarnate okay the fact that Jesus Christ himself took on flesh incarnate okay that flesh Uh, when I was growing up in New Mexico We used to eat what we call carne adivada, which is meat, carne, meat, flesh. Um, Sorry, you know, you talk about dinosaurs, them being carnivores, carnivorous. But Jesus Christ himself took on flesh. He didn't have to sit there and put in big, bold letters, I exist. God himself became a man, and he dwelt among us. And we called his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So here in Isaiah 53 there is some things here that the prophet Isaiah wrote about that tells us about Christ, about his suffering, about what he did for us and what he continually still does for us. And so we have an understanding about when we look at the uncommon Christmas This is not necessarily a message that you would really be like, yeah, okay, I'm so glad I heard a Christmas message today. But this is a message dealing more with the fact of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in here into our text here in just a moment. Father, we do thank you for this time that we get to look into your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us. Um, Lord, may your word draws closer to you. Um, Lord, it's your, it's your provision, it's your steadfast love, it's your mercy that you show to us continually, day by day, and help us to show that same attitude, show that, that love, that compassion, that mercy towards others, pointing people uh, to you. I pray, Lord, that you will use this to help us reflect upon what you accomplished. Uh, The very fact that you came down and that you were born. Um, That in itself is such a glorious, mighty thing. But Lord, you died for us. You gave your body. You gave your blood. And we are just so grateful for that. We thank you for your love for us. And may you help us be edified here this morning. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Isaiah 53 here, a very interesting portion of Scripture. And it's very lengthy, even though it's only 12 verses. So I don't necessarily have all of the verses here for us to read up on the screen here. But we will go through the verses nonetheless. But I wanted to pull out a few things here. And this morning I'd like to talk to you about an unattractive plant in the dirt. An unattractive plant in the dirt. That's exactly how God described his son, as an unattractive plant in the dirt. Sounds kind of hopeless, doesn't it? You know, you think about when you have a plant. My mom, she's got this like crazy addiction. She has like, I don't know, last time I counted, she had like at least 25 house plants. And I haven't seen these things in a while. And when I went to go see them, they, they built a, kind of like an addition onto their house. It was kind of like, a, uh, like a, uh, a sunroom. They had a hot tub in there. And she put all these plants in there. And I walked in there, and it was like walking into a jungle. I mean, it, these things have grown enormous. And I remember some of those plants as being kind of smaller. And they were kind of in the house by the window. But man, she put them in there, and they just exploded. But here God describes his son as an unattractive plant in the dry dirt. So let's take here, notice here, with a few verses here, what the Lord talks about here. First of all, I'd like to notice, number one, God's plan for his son. Let's read here Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. The Bible says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why couldn't God say a healthy plant, a robust oak, a giant sycamore tree... Why did he have to say a small, tender plant? Why did God say that? How come God couldn't say that this root was was in moist, fertile soil? Why does God have to say a root out of dry ground? There's something interesting here about this unattractive plant that is in the dry ground, that explains to us exactly who Jesus Christ is. Isaiah 53 has been said to contain the deepest, the loftiest thing in the Old Testament. One Bible commentator wrote this, he says, Here we seem to enter the Holy of Holies of Old Testament prophecy, that sacred chamber wherein are pictured and foretold the sufferings of Christ and the glory which should follow. So why did God choose to inspire Isaiah seven centuries before the birth of Christ to write a tender plant and a root out of dry ground? You know, let's try to picture this here just for a moment. How many of you ever been to maybe a desert-type place? Maybe like... uh, Let's just say out in the West somewhere. Have you ever been? Okay, a few of you. All right. Have you been in some of the real desolate areas where it seems like nothing is going on? Maybe you drove, okay, and you're driving and driving and there's nothing and nothing and nothing. It seems like there's no life anywhere. You're thinking, am I even in the United States anymore? Can you imagine the picture if you're walking in a desolate area, it's dry, it's hot, it's dusty and it just seems there's, it's void of life and as you're walking you come upon a plant, a small scrawny scrubby looking bush and it's there and it seems to somehow be surviving, and there's nothing else around. And you're looking around in the, in, the, in the ground there, and it's all cracked up and dried out. And you're going, how in the world is this plant surviving? That's the picture that Isaiah is trying to paint for us, of showing us of who Christ is. There appears to be no life, no water, no vegetation, except this scrawny little plant ...that has somehow survived. You know, you stop and think, how is it surviving? It's small and tender. When the wind blows, it almost breaks in two. How is this possible? How was this plant able to take root in such a harsh environment? Are you getting the picture? God's prophet Isaiah was inspired to write about the sufferings of Christ here. And he describes him as a young plant... And as a root out of dry ground. God's prophet writes about his sufferings even before his birth. It seemed that this plant would hardly have a chance at success. And flourishing, the harsh condition seems like an unlikely situation for this plant to even survive. And much less being a root in dry ground. Further adds to the complexity of the situation here. You know, when I was, uh, when I first started in ministry, before I went to Bible college, I was working at a church. It was like my home church. And I got hired on there to work uh, doing like grounds and maintenance and then also doing some outreach uh, type things. And the pastor came to me one day and he said, hey, I want to have some flowers planted out here uh, in the front of the road. I said, okay. So I went and got some flowers and they were like those uh, marigold type uh, flowers. I dug a bed, got it all ready and everything. I took the flowers and I put them in there and I covered back up with dirt. And I went out there and I was faithfully watering those those flowers every single day. But you know, as the week started going by, the flowers, they started kind of wilting. They started getting worse and worse and worse. And before you know it, man, they were like dried up and dead, and I mean, it looked terrible. And the pastor asked me, he said, what's going on with those flowers? I said, I don't know, I, I, I dug a thing, I watered them, I've been out there watering them. Well, his wife went out to go inspect and she found out what the problem was. What I had done is, is the, the flowers, when they come in the little plastic cartons, I didn't take them out of the carton, I just <laughs> left them in the carton. <laughs> But you think about that. Here's this tender plant that is out in the wilderness, and yet it has seemed to find life. And we look at it we say, there's no way that this plant could be surviving. From what we read by Isaiah, he speaks of what seems to be an impossible situation. A tender plant, a scrubby little scrawny bush and a root out of dry ground. But that is what God is all about, is he not? God is all about taking the impossible situations and making them possible. The scriptures tell us what is impossible with men is possible with God. God. And in times of desperation, in times of of hardship in our life, when we look around and we say, this is an impossible situation, that is when God begins to do his greatest work in our lives because he takes the impossible and makes it possible. But here, the prophet is talking about Christ as being a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. The absurd, the hopeless, the unworkable situations that sometimes we find ourselves in are the ways that God chooses to use to bring glory to himself. I think that is what makes the story of Christ so great because it's the odds of which Christ had to overcome in order to be our Savior. He was a small, tender plant. A root out of dry ground. Consider the hardships that Christ had in being born into this world. Here's just a few of them. Number one, the Lord came from a paralyzed nation. The Jews had been laid low by several foreign powers. It was the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans that had come in. The the one great nation of Israel had been laid to waste. Something that was so glorious and grand at one time was nothing more but just a stump. It was just a shell of its former, what it used to be. And Christ was born into that time. He was born in the Roman rule of that time. It was a time when when the Roman government had control over Israel. And they had no say so in what they were doing. And here's these Jews living in this time under Roman pressure, under Roman government. It'd be like today, living here in America, and all of a sudden a foreign power coming in and taking everything that we own, enforcing rules and regulations upon us that we don't want to have enforced upon us. This was a hardship that Christ had to endure. Secondly, Jesus arrived to begin his mission. When he arrived to begin his mission in the most vulnerable form imaginable, he showed up not as a mighty warrior, not as a great order, but what did he show up as? A baby. All of his enemies that thought that he was a threat, said, hey, this is so easy, we could get rid of this child, no problem. In fact, Herod himself sent out a decree to have all the children two years and younger to be slaughtered in the streets. But Christ escaped through that. He went through, down there to Egypt, his, his parents being warned by a dream to take the young child to Egypt. And Christ was born as a baby. Thirdly, Christ was reared in a despised community. Where did Christ grow up in? Nazareth. The Nazarites were known as people that had guile. They were people that were deceitful. In fact, it was said, Nathaniel said to Philip, "'Can anything good come out of Nazareth?' And Philip's reply says, "'Come and see,' saying, "'Come and listen to this man, Christ, "'who has come out of Nazareth.'" And what was Nathaniel's response? He says, indeed, look at this. Here's a a person who lives in Nazarite that has no guile in him whatsoever. In other words, Christ grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Fourthly, Christ had no formal education in the teachings of the rabbis. He wasn't schooled in in the train of thought In fact, we find him at a young age as he's sitting in the temple asking questions and these people are amazed at his wisdom going, where in the world did he learn this from? In other words, he ain't have no schooling on his records. But Christ overcame all of those things because he is a tender plant, a root out of the dry ground. This was God's plan for his son, as you can see, this was the most unlikely situation for Christ, for someone to be born during this time—a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. The Jews were looking for a savior, but if you had your pick of a savior, would you choose a baby? Would you choose somebody who wasn't schooled in the the, the school of the rabbis? Would you choose somebody that didn't necessarily come as a mighty warrior? When Christ came on the scene, they didn't want him. They were looking for somebody else. Let's look at a few things that God planned for his son in this passage. Notice a few of these words that are emboldened here. It says that he has no former majesty. He would come as a servant. He would come as one that wouldn't be surrounded with splendor and pomp and circumstance. He was born in a barn. That's no place for a king. But here Christ came as a servant. He had no form or majesty. He wasn't born with a spoon, a silver spoon in his mouth. He had no beauty. There was nothing about him that would attract us to him. There was nothing that we would look at and say, boy, that guy, he's a really good looking guy. It was, he was just a plain, ordinary-looking man. The Bible says that he was despised. Jesus had people show him contempt. They treated him as though he was worthless. They treated him as, oh, yeah, there's that Jesus guy. Yeah, boy, look at this. He's hanging out with homeless people and prostitutes and drunk people. Yeah, we don't want anything with that guy. He was treated with contempt. He was rejected. All those who were committed followers of him, even the ones that expressed and said, I will never leave you. Guess what? When Jesus was arrested, all of them forsook him. He was rejected. Bible says here that he was a man of sorrows. Nothing more could be said than that. The fact that the sorrows of Christ can be seen on every page of the gospel records. He was a man of sorrows. And it says that he was acquainted with grief. Both in mind and in the body, Christ had all of these things in his life. So here is that scrubby, tender plant. And we're looking at all of these lists of things. And we say, This is an impossible situation here. The fact that this plant would even be surviving. But yet, it did. Why is that? Because God had a plan for his son. Bible says here that they turned a blind eye. They esteemed him not. In other words, people hid their faces from him. It's kind of like uh, sometimes when you are driving around and... I know I've done this before. You see somebody standing on the street corner, they have a sign that says, uh, you know, need help, this, that, whatever. And sometimes what we do is we turn a blind eye because either we don't want to make eye contact with that person or we don't want to read the sign and feel guilty about whatever. So we turn a blind eye. In other words, we don't want to even deal with your situation. Here is Christ. People turned a blind eye against his situation. They didn't want anything to do with him. It seems like an impossible situation. So God's plan for his son sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Why would God plan this for his son? You as a parent, if you have children, would you plan your life for your child this way? To have no form or majesty, no beauty, to be despised, rejected, to have sorrow in their life, to be acquainted with grief, and people turn their blind eye against them? Was that something that you would want and desire for your children? Of course not. But why did God plan this for His Son? Well, let's keep reading here. Let's look here. The Bible says here, continuing in Isaiah 53. It says here in verses 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he continues here in verses 7 through 8 He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so open not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off? Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And we find here also, secondly, God's mission for his son in verses 9 and 10 and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So God's plan for his son that tender plan a root out of dry ground is because God had a mission God had a had a purpose for his son. And that mission was that the hardships that he was going to endure, those difficulties that he was had to overcome in life was all for a purpose because the culmination of all of that was that Jesus was going to go to the cross. And in that alone was a hardship, was a difficulty that he had to undertake. The scriptures that we read just read lays out for us in graphic detail about the mission God planned for his son. It tells us Jesus, knowing this of himself, Jesus knew of the difficulties that he was going to undertake, knowing that he was going to go to the cross, knowing that he was going to be despised, knowing that he was going to be rejected, knowing that he was going to be pierced, knowing that the the judgment and the chastisement of God was going to be laid upon him. Jesus, knowing all of that, still went ahead with it. You know, nothing could speak more of God's mission for His Son. Bear of our griefs and sorrows, smitten, stricken by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised for our peace, and most of all, our iniquities that were laid on Him. How many sins have we committed in a lifetime? You know, we all do things that are wrong. We all say things that are wrong. We think things that are wrong. But think about the things that we have done in the deepest, the darkest, most secret, hidden places in our lives. And those very things were laid on Jesus Christ. Christ. And he became the bear of our iniquities. God's mission for his son has given us so much. He's given us salvation. He's given us forgiveness of our sins. This unattractive plant in the dry dirt, the most unlikely candidate to survive, has provided life for all who believe in him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities. You know, we may never understand the gravity of that statement. But when we behold our sin and how terrible and unattractive it was, and that it was my sin, our sin, that was laid upon Jesus Christ, that He took that upon Himself, that makes the unattractive plant the much more glorious. Because even though people see it and they say this is worthless. There's no way this is going to work. There's no way that we could trust in this. But yet we, those of us that have trusted in Christ, we look at that plant and we say what a glorious plant. Look at this. It's like a jungle. Here's a couple things about his mission that we learn here out of this. Number one. It provided a divine sacrifice. God's mission for his son was to provide a divine sacrifice. It is very apparent in the text that the life of Jesus was willingly offered. It says here that he goes before the the, the slaughter. He goes before the the, the shears. And he opened, he didn't open his mouth. It was willingly offered. He wasn't forced or coerced. He willingly was brought to the slaughter. His life was quickly taken away from him. It was cut off from the land of the living. He was delivered up for our sin, and it was the exchange of a sinless life for a sinful life. And Christ willingly did that. It was a divine sacrifice for us. Secondly, we find here not only a divine sacrifice, but God's mission for his son was to provide a divine salvation. Please listen to this carefully with your heart. Even though a sacrifice was made upon the cross, and Jesus paid for all the sin debt of the entire world, that sacrifice has no effect whatsoever unless a person receives that personally into their life. We can talk all we want to about Jesus. We can talk all we want to about the sacrifice he made. But that tender plant, that root out of dry ground, has no effect until we personally apply it in our lives and in our hearts. On June 26, 2002, I made a decision to trust in that sacrifice. I took Jesus at his word saying, Come unto me all that you labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I took Jesus seriously and I said, Jesus, I want your sacrifice for my sins. I want it to be applied personally to my account. And so salvation only comes when we recognize the sacrifice that has been made and apply that personally to our lives. The once despised unattractive plant that seems as it could not provide anything has given us salvation. It has provided what our lives need most, to be forgiven for our griefs and our sorrows to be borne by another. An unlikely situation, a root out of dry ground, an unattractive, scrubby, scrawny little bush provides salvation for us. This was God's mission for his son. But it doesn't end there. Sometimes we look at salvation, we look at Christ, and we say, boy, what a glorious thing that he provided for us in salvation. Let's keep reading here these last few verses here about Christ. In verses 10 through 11, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Thirdly, God's passion for his son. It's his will. God has a passion. God has a will. And in this passage, that will was directed towards his son. Notice the text. It was his passion. It was his will to crush him. It was his passion. It was his will to put him to grief. It was his passion to make his soul an offering for guilt. It was his passion to make his will prosper in Christ's hands. And it was his passion to see and be satisfied by the anguish of his soul. Notice in the text here, twice Isaiah mentions here, he says, when he has put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, and secondly, the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Why did Isaiah have to write that twice? Well, Christ bore the sole penalty for our sins. The real sacrifice for sin was the full surrender of Christ's will, his life. And can you imagine here that Christ, when he's on the cross, he gave his life. His whole being was given so that we might have salvation. Nothing was held back. I think about the scene as Christ, he's in the garden, and as he's praying, the Bible says that he's praying out of earnestness and and out of much anguish in his heart. And his sweat begins to mingle with his blood, and the blood capillaries there break as he's under much distress, and he's praying to his father. And what does he pray? He says, Father, if it be your will, please take this cup of suffering away from me. But he says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And I find it interesting the fact that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And it was his will to give him great grief. And it was the will of the Lord to bring much anguish of his soul. But what does that have to do with his will and his passion? Well, here's a better question that I'd like to ask for you this morning. What is the main purpose of God sending His Son to be offered as a sacrifice for our sins? If you think to save us, that's a good answer, but that's not the main purpose. The main purpose of God sending His Son. It is because it is for the glory of God. When the sufferings of Christ are spoken about in Scripture, we find many times it has to deal with His glory. Listen to a few of these verses here. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In Romans 8.34 it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Luke 24 verse 26 says, Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. In Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9, but we see him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 1 Peter 5 1, So I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ... As well as the partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In this text here, the glories that are spoken of... Are the glories of Christ and the glory of God that comes to us as a benefit. The fact that we are made righteous because of the sufferings of Christ. God receives glory from all of this because he sees lost sinners... Turning back to Him, receiving His forgiveness through His Son Jesus. So, what does that have to do with the unattractive plant in the dry dirt? When this world sees Christ, when this world sees Christianity, when they see our message that we're supposed to be proclaiming, you know what they see? A tender plant. A root out of dry ground, they see it as the most unlikely situation to provide anything for them. They would rather trust in themselves, a church, baptism, communion. They would rather look towards something else than to look towards that unattractive plant in the dry ground. And the glory that God receives from this That he could take that unattractive plant, a root out of dry ground, and be able to provide salvation for us, it all points back to God. And God receives all the glory from this. Because I guarantee you, none of us in here that know Christ is our Savior, when we stand before God, we're not going to say, yeah, God, I'm so glad that, you know, that one day, um, you know... I was uh, able to go to church and and I was able to do this and I was able to do that and I was able to do this. That's not gonna be the case. Bible says we're gonna fall down, we're just gonna worship him because he's gonna receive the glory because that unattractive plant in dry ground was able to provide salvation for us. So how about you? If you're not a follower of Christ, I would urge you to turn to Jesus Christ. You say, Mike, possibly all of us in here are followers of Christ. That's great. I hope that's the case. This message is what we are to be proclaiming. Yes, Jesus did come in a manger, but that wasn't the end. That was only the beginning. He was going to bleed and die for our sins. People like to worship the baby Jesus in the manger but they don't want to worship him on the cross, bleeding and dying for their sins. An unattractive plant in dry ground. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time that we got to reflect upon what Isaiah wrote. Lord, you inspired him to even write those things. God, thank you for giving such an accurate description of who your son is. Thank you for providing salvation for us. God, may we never lose the wonder and the amazement of salvation. It's such a key ingredient in our lives. And Lord, may you please always bring us back to the cross, always bring us back to the sacrifice that was made for our sins. God, our sin that is so terrible and our sin that is so grievous and our sin that is just so weighty with guilt. Lord, thank you for taking that. Thank you for being a bearer of our iniquities and a, and a, allowing us to have peace because the chastisement of God was laid upon you. Thank you for that. Lord, we give praise to you because you are worthy. You receive glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.